This is ContraZoom, a live in limbo production. This is ContraZoom, where we go back and forth about film. I'm Dakota Arsenault, and this is another installment of our Make Remake series. In 1949, George Orwell published his landmark novel, 1984, detailing what the future might look like if we allow our civil liberties to be eroded and for extreme ideologies to take hold so strongly that the very fabric of society would crumble. It only took eight years for the first film adaptation of the book made, directed by Michael Anderson, starring Edmund O'Brien as Winston. The film is, by the numbers approach, the bare elements of the story and for the screen, while removing motivations for secondary characters, only leaving room for the place, setting, and warnings. Now, more than ever does it seem like Orwell was decades ahead of his time. We have seen the slow rise of CCTV cameras in every public space, allowing people to watch you everywhere, like in elevators, to coffee shops, on public transit, and even at work. This is nothing new, and as a society, we understand that public space is public. With stories coming out about Facebook selling your data to places like Cambridge Analytica, a British-based firm that manipulates people and helps sway elections all over the world, break out over the past few weeks, we are entering a world of unknown. There have been stories about how your computers, phones, and other electronic devices listen to your conversations without users knowing, furthering the idea that Big Brother is always watching and listening. We have to worry about not liking politicians, corporations, actions being taken against us. A common thread in the books and movies is the idea of hate minutes, propaganda, where propaganda is played and everyone yells insults at the screens, working themselves into a lather of fury and anger. It is scientifically proven that if you force yourself to laugh, you will eventually start laughing for real. The same concepts hold true. If you pretend to, say, believe something for long enough, your brain will no longer be able to take a difference. Who will remember during the Donald Trump you would get people to chant phrases like, lock her up, about his opponent Hillary Clinton. This sort of action is highly unsafe as it creates groupthink that goes unchecked. For the last 20 years, Fox News has purely to rile up people to hating others. When your entire business model is predicated upon the idea of needing to hate someone, you eventually need to make up enemies. Other news networks fire or suspend anchors for, ni- for manipulating facts lying to the audience. Or as Fox will either outright ignore calls to correct lies, or only subtract them on the bottom ticker during hours when they have less views. There's a documentary circulating around called The Brainwashing of My Dad that tells the story of how people being fed a constant stream of far right-wing extremist views that go unchallenged effectively changed a person's internal wiring, creating hateful monsters that are triggered by buzzwords that make them gnash their teeth and foam with rage, much like the way the hate minutes work in 1984. While the book mostly deals with fascism, Nazism, the movie makes it clear that the far, that is far from the only ism ideology that can wreak havoc on society. The 1984 version of 19, directed by Michael Radford and starring John Hurt as Wayne, praised communism just as dangerous as right-wing authoritarianism, with the ideas of equal rations for everyone, buzzwords about how society doesn't all work together for a common goal that will fall apart and the idea that items that do not serve a perfunctory task are not allowed. The look of the film is heavily influenced by poorer countries that live behind the Iron Curtain of the USSR and post-World War II Eastern Europe. 
countries like Armenia, Georgia, and Belarus are still struggling to this day to make ends Orwell witnessed firsthand the destruction of London by the Nazis, with millions of homes being bombed and tens of thousands of people dying. A theme of authoritarian regimes is the need for constant war with enemies. We are witnessing that with the Trump administration using Mexicans, Muslims, transgendered people, women, liberals, school shooting survivors, and many more as enemies that need to be kept in their place. If it wasn't for the disastrous Iraq and Afghanistan wars that only occurred in the last decade, it wouldn't surprise me to see more people wanting to jump into a new war. The biggest current problem is allowing lies to spread so quickly by politicians to rile up their bases. Instead of condemning literal neo-Nazis, we are told, sides are the same. Instead of focusing on making everyday life safer, we get told about fake attacks like the Bowling Green Massacre as a way to spin the liberal media wants to keep secrets from people. Or a phrase so Orwellian that George himself must regret not coining it. We have fake news, a catch-all slogan to slur any fact you don't like, regardless of how true it may be. It's easy to look at Donald Trump and say he's the only Orwell-like character in the world, but that just isn't so. Other populist politicians will use dog whistles to manipulate voters to ignore facts and gang up on people who need our help. In England, you have the Brexiters like Niall Farage and Boris Johnson. In France, you have Marine Le Pen. Canada, you have Kelly Leitch and the Ford Brothers, and goes on and on. When facts don't matter, you can have talking heads have arguments over inauguration crowd sizes, presidents admitting on TV that they've fired the head of the FBI over in Russia investigation, and former key election campaign members get called coffee boys when they get taken down by indictment. It becomes tougher and tougher to remain optimistic. How do we stay vigilant against people that want to tell us that 2 plus 2 is 5 today? Moral, but never 4. Despite the encroaching privacy concerns the internet offers, it has made the world smaller than ever, allowing people to connect over similar ideals and goals. Hopefully, the rising tide of anti-authoritarianism keeps growing, and we can start to make the world into one that loves one another and helps your neighbor in need instead of mocking them for their misfortune. When we come back, we'll look at the two different 1984, just what worked and what didn't. I search. A dreamer to put the world to rise. I for always makes As I said before, this is another edition of Make Remake, 
And as always, Stephanie Pryor joins me. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. How are you doing? I am good. Uh, I'm recovering a bit from a cold, so mm-hmm. I sound a little stuffy. Hopefully that doesn't bother people too much. Mm-hmm. Maybe you'll get the, the better side where you get that like husky, sexy voice. Yeah, all right. I'll try, I'll, I'll try to, you know, hone in on that. Okay. Uh, so we watched two different versions of 1984. We saw the very first cinematic adaptation in what is probably the third or fourth version directly of the 1984 title. I know it's been kind of remade under different names or not necessarily appropriated, but similar ideas. We can definitely see uh, a real through line with this dystopian future that George Orwell created in his landmark book how it kind of shows up in so many different ways. Most notably right now, Black Mirror, which seems like it was might have been directly invented by Orwell himself. But we're here to talk about these two movies. We talked about uh, Seven Samurai and Magnificent Seven before. And we also did the series of the Dracula movies, which is pretty interesting because we took three different Dracula yeah. adaptations and just kind of talked more about the character itself and what that really means. I think that was a lot of fun, but this, this is, this is going to be different because this is something that's a lot more, uh, the work is a lot more well known. Right. So I know you had read, you've read the book in high school or something. Yeah. And I reread it just a few years ago. Okay. Yeah. So you had a bit of a, a bit of a baseline going into it. Uh, first off, what did you think of both movies? If you want to talk about one in particular or, or as a whole? Yeah. Well, I mean, first off, I think that, uh, I, like I said, I read the book a few years ago. So from what I remember, mostly both films seem to stick to very similar structure of the book and different things that happened. Of course, minor characters were kind of omitted and, uh, or amalgamated, but I think they both kind of stuck true to the original, uh, book, but, um, Probably, I'd have to say that the 1984 version of 1984 was probably a little bit more well done in my in in my book, in my personal opinion. It just kind of felt it had more of a realism to it. Uh, it was kind of more threatening, and it felt very post-war to me. Whereas the uh, 56 version of 1984 was kind of more of like your fifth, like your typical 50s idea of what things would be. I guess going forward, the easiest way to, to do this is call it the first version and the second version. Mm. So the first version is going to be referring to the 1956 one, and the second one is going to be the 1984. So that way we kind of know without <laughs> yeah. having to say the 1984, 1984 over and over again, which is kind of ridiculous. Uh, which, like, I think we have to at least mention this. This was completely planned. You know, you, you read in the IMDb trivia about how they filmed the movie directly when. Orwell was writing about it happening and they at the end of the movie there's a little title card being like it was filmed on the direct days that they could and sort of thing so this is this is like the ultimate movie gimmick where you, you have this and I also think about the very famous Apple ad of 1984 where they kind of spoof it themselves where it was the introduction of one of their first computers and they're all uh, enjoying their hate and this sort of thing mm-hmm. kind of flashes back that uh, but yeah, the, having 1984 come out in 1984 is definitely the, the ultimate marketing gimmick, and I think it works really well. It was good because at the time, that was sort of the height of the Cold War era, you know, tensions between the U.S. and Russia and all that sort of stuff. So the, yeah. this idea of fearing 
another sort of extremist ideology taking place, I think was definitely really prevalent. Uh, of course, you know, you have an, a, a British filmmaker and a British crew tackle this subject matter, which obviously it is because it's a British novel. Yeah. Orwell was British. Um, I think, I think it, it definitely helps having a bit of that outsider look because so much of the world, especially at that time was, America versus Russia, mm, mm-hmm. not too dissimilar to what we're going through today <laughs> for very different reasons. Yeah, though. Yeah. Uh, uh, I guess, you know, everything is cyclical. <laughs> uh, yeah, I really like the, these movies too. I think the first one was a very good by the numbers movie. You know, it, it told you the plot from point A to point B yeah. to point C and there wasn't really anything else sort of going on. It was just kind of there to tell you the story about who Smith was and his growing disillusionment with Big Brother and, you know, the country as a whole and everything that's going on is kind of seems like it's put off to the side and extra and not really mattering that much. Whereas in the second version, a lot of the secondary characters, you really understand who they are a lot more. I think you, you get a lot more knowledge about who Julia is. Yeah. Um, for better or for worse, you kind of learn a bit more about the O'Brien character. I think the only one that kind of suffers more in the second film is the Parsons character, who is um, Winston's work buddy, I guess the best way to say it. Yeah, slash, like, they live in the same apartment, too, I think, because they, they often walk to work together. Yeah, yeah. That seemed to be the only character that sort of suffered more in the second one, whereas I feel we got more information about who was character in the first film. Mm. So that, that might just be me, but um, but yeah, they were both really good movies. I think, um, Edmund O'Brien played Winston, the first one in one, they cast an American to play a very British character, which is very odd. The movie takes place in London and he's got kind of a bit of, not, not a bit of a Midwest drawl, but like, he definitely kind of have, has a bit of an American accent to it. Yeah, yeah, yes. Um, whereas John Hurt, obviously one of the greatest British actors in the last, you know, 50, 60 years or so, does a fantastic job with performance of Winston. I was really impressed by him. Yeah, me too. I mean, I, I thought both of them did a good job, but yeah, I think worlds apart. <laughs> yeah. They, they were asked to do different things, and I think what they were asked to do, they both they both brought what they needed to. Yeah. Um, I would almost say that the first film required a bit more, I don't think machoism is the right word, but a bit more steady hand, whereas the second one, I think, required a bit more um, inner conflict going on, a bit more sort of self-doubt, a little bit more yeah. mental weaknesses, things like that, which I think John Hurt was able to yeah, and I think it also just helped as a viewer to it. It made the characters more relatable because you could kind of see where they were coming from, what they were thinking, and it wasn't just being told at you. You can, were, were kind of like feeling the same emotions through the film as it went. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so uh, I, I think uh, you know the hallmark of what we do. This is make remake as we take two films that are inspired by the same source material. One is a direct remake of the other. Uh, and then we kind of talk about how these movies sort of tell the story similarly and differently. 
So the idea of the similarity point is what do they both do in the same way and for better or for worse, how do they achieve them? And then for the differences, you know, that's a little more self-explanatory. Where do the plot points diverge? How do they sort of tell the story a little bit differently? And does that improve the story? Do you get a bit of a different meaning of what this movie is about? And so this one I actually found was a little difficult at times to come up with with ideas to talk about for both similars, similarities and differences just because they both relatively stayed so true to the book that you can't, you're basically just describing book plot points. You're not really talking about the actual movie-making part of it. Right. Um, but I think we came up with, with some good topics. Uh, so I guess I'll, I'll, I'll start about things that maybe the, these movies did a little bit differently. Um, I think something that was interesting was in this world, 1984, we're so focused about Winston and him being an adult. And we learned that he kind of, he was not born into this world. He was very young when this world was created. Uh, so he has a very foggy memory of what it was like before. And he also remembers the sort of indoctrination that him and everyone around him went through. But we get an interesting angle by looking at the use of children in these movies. Uh, specifically, there's I think there's one character, Parsons' daughter, who goes by the name Selena. I don't know if she has a name in the second movie because she seems so briefly uh, and only referenced as his daughter. Um, where in the first movie, she goes around following Winston, uh, constantly accusing him of being a thought criminal and a bad person. And everyone just sort of laughs it off and be like, oh, this little girl, she's, uh, she's going to be in line for a good career ahead of her. She knows how to spot those thought criminals when he sees them, whether or not they're real or not. <laughs> and so I think everyone just kind of has a good giggle and, and sort of Winston is sort of playing it off as a oh, crap she know about me? What, what is she seeing in me that I don't? But we as an audience realize that she's just probably doing that to literally everyone. Um, so that's kind of an interesting thing. And she follows him around as he starts sneaking about. And she actually catches him getting a note from Julia, the woman he is seeing uh, in the first movie. That's kind of an interesting plot. Whereas in the second movie, she really doesn't play that much of a part. Uh, they at one point, she calls Winston a thought criminal, and then the same plot at the very end where she turns her father into the uh, Ministry of Love. But there isn't much there. Um, what, what was your take on, on you know, the, the use of children in these movies? Yeah, well, I think definitely the first version, you know, the... The idea of having, of educating these children or policing these children to be police themselves. I mean, they're considered to be thought police when they're the adult version. Like little kids are kind of in training. And so, like, it, it's that seed of paranoia. They're there to make you fall in line. Because if you start doing stuff and these kids are calling you out, you're going to be like, oh my God, they know. Or if you, you're not doing anything and they call you out, you're like, well, they're just doing their job. I have nothing to worry about. So it's only when you're doing something against Big Brother that 
the them being the way they are creates that paranoia and that like fear of being caught, which I think is very important. You need to have these children around because I mean, kids are everywhere and <laughs> people will just like say and do anything in front of kids for the most part. And you don't, you're not thinking about them taking it to heart and telling anybody else. So I think especially with that being in mind from he wasn't born into this world you know he was a kid himself when it came to him so he still sees children i think as innocent beings and not really as scary until this all starts happening and uh so you really feel that in the first version whereas in, in the second version it's kind of almost back burner she's barely there and honestly i thought Parson's son in the second version was scarier than the daughter because you saw his son. He, I think he had more lines than the daughter did, mm -hmm. to be honest. But um, yeah, it was just it was interesting to see how both took it differently. The second one also did something really interesting that I, I appreciate it was the idea of how do you teach these kids to be a good model citizen? And they kind of have them in troops, much like we have Boy Scouts today, where, you know, they learn what it means to be a responsible person about, they don't just learn tying knots, but they also, you know, learn that volunteering with the elderly is a good thing to do and, and all that sort of stuff uh, about how to grow up and be a good person. So that's, that's definitely something that's sort of mimicked in this. But also, I think it really plays off the idea of the Hitler Youth Party, mm. where back in Nazi Germany, you had... Uh, young boys who were more or less forced to be in the equivalent of the Boy Scouts, but uh, learning Nazi propaganda, but also sort of using their positions as children to be able to sort of go unseen in if they need to report someone they can, you know. Uh, probably the most famous example of a, a Nazi youth kid on screen is in The Sound of Music. You have Rolf, who, uh, who dressed up like a little Boy Scout is uh, is a bit of a Nazi youth, Hitler youth kid. Um, and so that's sort of interesting that it almost seems like once the kids are revealed in the second movie, they're always just kind of in the background. You see shots of kids standing around on the street corners. You see them singing on the train to people. You see them going for hikes. And then and it's just a whole bunch of different things where I think it's a really interesting idea of, of the indoctrination of youth and the only way that the party can keep living is if they have people keep believing because as soon as lots of people don't believe in the party, that's when it all crumbles mm. because you need to have a hundred percent support or else it won't continue. And the best way to do that is having the kids learn from in a very early age, because if they, if they do it, they get praise, you know, they get good jobs, whatever. If they don't, they'll get punished. They'll get sent to ministry love or they learn it from such an early age that they're just so ingrained into them and it has to be that way. And that's sort of a, a very interesting take that they don't address in the first film yeah, at that's all. that's true. Yeah, I didn't even think about that. Yeah. Um, and I think uh, moving on to our next point, I guess an interesting one is the way Winston is watched or at least the way that we perceive that citizens of this world are being watch do you have any have any thoughts on that that you want to talk about yeah i thought the second version really hit at home with that because i mean you had a couple shots where it was like from the view of 
quote unquote big brother, kind of like a CCTV thing. Mm-hmm, yeah, it's where a security cam footage. Yeah, you felt like that you were kind of taken behind the camera, if you will, to see what they were seeing. And you just, you kind of felt that presence everywhere. There were telescreens in every shot and Big Brother's face everywhere. And I think it was just really more uh, present in the second one. Whereas in the first one, there's a lot more vocals. You hear a lot of more like audio of saying Big Brother's watching you and Mm -hmm. Big Brother's here. And so you still feel his presence, but it, it doesn't feel as, like, om, ominous. Ominous. Yeah, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> yeah. Um, the, the way they, they show it seems different because I think, you know, it's also a bit of technological advancements where they could say that there was, you know, pinhole cameras or whatever in the first film, but because that wasn't literally an invention yet you couldn't really get away with the audience understanding what it was. So you have these much bigger screens, which are probably the size of a small melon or something. Like I'm trying to think of an appropriate size, you know, bigger than a baseball, smaller than a basketball. Um, that looks like it was almost like a dual camera and audio recorder. It had like sound waves floating across of it, which was almost very like, uh, a uh, very Twilight zone mm. sort of thing that you'd expect that sort of design work for. And it kind of has a bit, a, a bit of a sense where it's it's always watching and there'd be scenes when Winston would come in to his apartment and there's one and he'd have to like hold up his nameplate and you know show what's in his briefcase and then the camera would say everything is good. And that and it sort of seems to like double as both. You see that camera in, in several shots. So I guess yeah. what it is, camera audio whereas with the second one it seems to be a lot more we understand that is specifically just a camera uh and the microphone is we don't really see microphones but we understand that's probably a different setup which is you know due to the technology of it being shot in the 80s we understand how that technology would advance that it could be smaller it could be more discreet things so I think that's sort of a, an interesting way to look at it. And it definitely has a more voyeuristic feel in the second film. When we're seeing shots of him in his apartment at work, we definitely kind of feel we we feel that we're a part of the Big Brother system. That we can see the way he's doing that, and we also sort of see the limitations of the cameras because when you don't see those shots. You just assume that the camera can see everywhere, even though in the first one and in the second one, we know that he writes in his diary away from the camera, but it's hard to see what that angle might be because you yeah. sometimes forget. You're just, when you think about it, you're like, oh yeah, there's a camera recording me right now. Uh, it must be able to see everything. Yeah, yeah. But 360. 360, but obviously <laughs> that's not how that works. No, like yeah. there, there has to be limitations to it. And I, and I like that. They showed that in, in, I think, it's only two shots, and they're both early. I, I sort of yeah. wish that they, they did it a few more yeah, times because it was a really nice it touch. Through. Yeah, yeah, but it definitely sort of shows the limitations of the technology that they have, which sort of allows Winston to, you know, be off to the side writing in his diary. Yeah. Which is sort of an interesting sort of thing. Um, then we also have the, I guess the best way to describe it is the subversive book. Um, 
I can't remember. Emmanuel Goldstein is the name of the writer, mm-hmm. which just has to make me laugh. This <laughs> this idea, you know, especially like if they're going back to, to Nazi Germany, Goldstein, that's a Jewish name. The idea of why Hitler was able to convince Germany to go to war was that they believed that Jewish people were controlling the world and that they were ruining the lives of Germans. So I don't think it's any sort of mistake that George Orwell used a Jewish name sort of symbolize the distrust uh, of the ruling party, mm-hmm. which I think is really good. It turns out that Emmanuel Goldstein might not even be a real person. It seems oh. like it's a made-up name, no, which totally isn't. Tef- definitely goes back to the sort of propaganda that you would see that they would distribute in Germany of you know these uh, horrible, witchy-looking Jewish people to really make them look terrible, you know, highlight their big noses things like that were just super derogatory and racist. And so I, I definitely don't think it is an accident at all that they use a name like Goldstein to be the author of a subversive book. Um, that said, you know, the idea of this subversive book is that Winston, once he sort of reveals that he doesn't actually agree with uh, Big Brother and the party, uh, he gets gifted a book that sort of teaches him about the actual resistance that's going on and uh, ways to take down Big Brother and which ways Big Brother are actually manipulating the citizen. And and so that's there's definitely a, a difference in the way this reveal is sort of handled. And they, they kind of do it in, they reveal it in two different ways. So in the original film, uh, you have both Winston and Julia, who go and meet O'Connor, who is known as that, he's known as O'Brien in the second one, but originally in the first one, he's known as O'Connor, and he gives him this subversive book, and uh, and he's able to read, and Winston's able to read, but in the second one, uh, Winston goes alone to O'Brien's house, and is given what he is believed to be the latest version of the Newspeak Dictionary, but the book actually has the pages glued together uh, and they can separate the pages. And then it's basically like two books in one. So it's the, the book. But I think so. So that's sort of interesting that there's the two different ways that these books are sort of handled. One is, one is a decoy and one is the real thing. But either way, we have this book that's there. Um, but I think it, it both plays a, a big role about what this is and this idea of knowledge is power. Um, yeah. Do you have anything to add for that? I liked how the second version did that. Cause I felt like, you know, it's more incognito. If, if that book was found and the pages are still stuck together, you wouldn't really think about, you wouldn't think it was anything wrong. So I kind of liked that it was hidden. Whereas the, the idea of this, this all knowledgeable book, about like going against Big Brother, just being out there and being there for anyone to read and see. It seemed kind of nicely bound, <laughs> yeah, leather hardcover book. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's sort of like a a prop detail mm-hmm. of the first one that you know. I think with a better better budget, maybe behind it, they wouldn't just be like this book that we're going to use as a prop is what we're going to call of this book. <laughs> When in reality, it probably would have been, you know, like, hands strung together yeah. with a needle and thread yeah. or, you know, just a bunch of loose-leaf sheets together with a staple. Yeah. <laughs> uh, 
Um, I think one of the last bigger points for me is, is sort of the the reason for I, I I hate that they're called different names O'Connor and O'Brien. They're uh, the reason why is because the actor in the first film was named Edmund O'Brien, so they didn't want to confuse the audiences by having the O'Brien character called that. Connor, but in reality in the book, in the second movie, he is Brian. So bear with me in this point here. Uh, the last one is the reason for O'Connor and O'Brien turning on Winston. In the original film, we were led to believe that O'Connor just turned Winston into the authorities. We're not really sure what is sort of the impetus there, um, why if he was maybe goading him on, seeing if he can find people that are... You Already, things like that. We're not really explaining too much about what happens there. Um, but then in the second one, during Winston's torture session after he is uh, arrested, we learn that O'Brien was once a subversive himself, and this is his punishment. So we understand that his role is basically to catch other thought criminals does we 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 assume he does do this willingly but there may have been a time where he wasn't doing it willingly uh even when he was being reprogrammed so he basically has to keep up to date with what the resistance fighters are fighting or wanting and kind of has to ignore it or, or encourage people on but it definitely sort of changes the way we perceive that character um especially if you go back to the very first scenes are we are we expected to believe that right from the beginning he's trying to trick Winston? Like, I don't know how to read that. Do you, do you have any thoughts on, on how to read the differences of, of these two characters? Well, they are definitely set up to uh, lead us on in different ways. I know in the book, he, he was just, O'Brien was working with the inner party. He was part of the inner party, and it was basically just like a sting operation, him trying to catch thought criminals and, you know, um, investigate further into the the revolt, I guess. Um, but in the second one, the second version, um, I think it was more, maybe his punishment was to, to catch these other thought criminals. But I mean, you're, he would have been tortured himself. And I think that maybe his torture just led him into that direction. And, that's why he's doing it now is because that's where how he was rebred was to find these criminals. Yeah, it's it's tough because you don't really know what to to think of him for doing this. I guess in, in his mind, in his world, he's sort of a bit of a hero that he can prove that the rehabilitation works and that you can still be a productive member of the society even if you understand of what's going on in the underbelly and how people are being manipulated so i i think i think both films probably could have done a better job explaining the rationale for this character that's something that like right from the get-go really kind of confused me as as far as their motivations and mm-hmm. i feel similarly for the the shopkeeper who rents the room to Winston. Neither film really addresses why he turned on them. Yeah, I I felt it felt it more with the shopkeeper. Like I could understand O'Brien slash O'Connor's uh, kind of 
reasoning more. Like it, and maybe that's because I read the book and like knew that he was a baddie from the beginning. Mm-hmm. But um, it's just, it's really confusing as to why this shop owner would go so long too. He sold Winston several things that is against the party. And he even offers him his, the upstairs to conduct anti Oceana, Oceania things. And it's just like him, Winston and Julia have been doing this. We don't really know the timeline, but it's there. It's there. definitely sometime. Yeah. For like a couple of times. So it's either weeks, days, weeks, a month, who knows? Why it's, didn't they do it the first like, time? Why? Yeah. Why did you wait? It's not like you need to, to build evidence to prove that they're not <laughs> there, there's not a lot of due process going no, on. No, so world. it's just like, oh, you're you know, you're going against Big Brother into the Ministry of Truth you go. But like so that was kind of more weird to me. I thought it was more understanding from O'Brien's slash O'Connor's standpoint where it was all kind of speculation, sort of. And he was trying to bait Winston and Julia to see if it was just like a blip kind of thing because he even says to Winston when after he's caught he says of course I've committed thought crimes we all do so it, he's which is kind of human to say in this like dystopian future setting where it's like yeah we all have those moments where we're like that is this really what we're doing or is this right but the idea is that they're they can get past it the, when you're in the inner party you see what's going on, and you can just kind of like put it under the rug. You can you still think it, mm-hmm. but you know, you just go on with it anyway. Whereas if you're committing these thought crimes, it's you still searching for answers, and you want to go against what feels wrong. So I thought that was kind of interesting. But yeah, the shop owner was just like very weird. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I didn't. I... And maybe I can't remember what happens in the book about that, like if it explains more his motivations, but definitely they don't flush that out in the films. Yeah. It, it definitely, I think would have made the characters a lot more interesting. And the first one, like, I don't, I don't even know it. Like it, it seemed like the second, like I could almost believe that in the first film, the shopkeeper has also sort of been hired to, mm. to catch people, maybe not willingly. Well, he's running a shop, <laughs> yeah, like with things that no one's supposed to have. Yeah, which, I, which seems weird that Big Brother would let that happen, like that that stand. We under, We also sort of understand that they live in a different district where yeah. there is as much regulations where they are, which is also not something that's really fleshed out in the movies themselves. Well, I think it's because you need a. Everyone needs a lower class of people yeah. to feel like that they have something more than someone else. So I think these outer streets are kind of Big Brother's way of being like, see, see what freedom gives you? Yeah. Nothing. Which they definitely sort of expand more in the second film yeah. because they, they show the idea of, of prostitution existing and there's no cameras in that that mm-hmm. area and stuff like that. It just sort of the, the shopkeeper reveal at the very end. He sort of comes out and be like, I was the mastermind behind it all. He comes yeah. in smoking his cigarette. And he puts it out. Uh, and then he takes the coral from the paperweight and then leaves. And just kind of like, Oh, you're supposed to be big brother himself. Yeah. It was weird. And like in the first one, he was so sweet and so nice when mm-hmm. like he was talking to Winston. And then like when he 
bursts through the door like the Kool-Aid man. It's like, <laughs> what? <laughs> like, definitely a personality flip. Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, so that were some things that were done a little bit differently. We're going to take a short break, and when we get back, we're going to talk about things that were done. I'm just stepping in. There was some technical issues with the audio recording where it cut out. Uh, we are going back into the similarities of these two movies. Previously, we talked about the differences. Now we are talking about the similarities of these movies. Uh, we're starting off with the topic of the use in metaphor for rats. In both films, the culmination of Winston's torture ends with rats. In the original film, we learn through seeing a rat in his rent flat that rats scare him when we only hear their squeaking in Room 101. In the second film, we see a flashback to Winston's childhood, revealing rats appeared in the place of his mother and sister when he stole chocolate. And in Room 101... A rat mask is placed over his face, where we are shown moments where we are shown them moments away from eating his face. Both films use the rat metaphor to show Winston betraying Big Brother. We're going to go back into the recording, where we're going to pick off with Stephanie talking about this issue. Beginning, there's a there's the imagery of Winston as a kid standing there with this woman who I believe to be his mother is being eaten by rats, and that kind of like the initial showing of him why he would be afraid or hate hate rats and then we learn further on that um once when he was young winston stole chocolate from his sister and ran away or something like that and then when he comes back his mother and sister are gone and there's just these rats everywhere and so you you kind of understand where he's coming from and his hatred for rats in the second one a little bit better. But in the end, um, they're also the use of rats to torture him are very different. Where in the the first one, the first version, you don't even really see the rats in in his torture, which is kind of a shame because you kind of lose all fear when you don't see anything. It's just, you can hear the the rats like squeaking and whatever. Mm -hmm. But in the second version, which follows the book is this contraption that is like a cage that's attached to your face. And then the cage door is like released and these rats will then like eat you from the face inside, which is quite terrifying. Even if you're not scared of rats, who would want that? (laughs) I've got bigger fears, but I think that would probably be the worst way to die. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. And it's even worse when O'Brien is, uh, taking Winston step by step on how the rats go about devouring the human face and how when I slide this one door, they'll come through to the next stage. When I slide this last door, then they're going to come at your face like bullets out of a gun. And they usually go for the eyes first. And it's like, oh my God, stop talking. (laughs) Like it just makes it so much worse. But yeah, so like you can understand why 
he had a fear and how it would be even more heightened to be in this contraption. Mm, uh, yeah, it's it's interesting because you know the the, the way that shot the two films. The first one, obviously, was sort of coming during the height of the Hayes Code. This is a British film, so even though it wasn't necessarily bound by the same restrictions during filming for it to get a release in the united states it still sort of had to adhere to it so neither in the first one there there's no nudity whatsoever even though you know they're sneaking away to have sex um yeah and then the idea of showing actual torture is not really shown at all as you said it's it's all it's more of a audio tick than an actual visual one all we see is him going into the room and you hear all the squeaks of the rats which is mildly ominous but it definitely isn't terrifying by any means and just breaks down when rat squeaks uh really good piece of sound design from the first film i Mm -hmm. appreciate but it's it's done completely differently this the first one is uh a mildly upsetting science fiction dystopian movie whereas the second one is much more of a bleak almost psychological horror not in not in the psychological horror sense of of really what's going on but sort of understanding what the characters are going through it's a personal psychological horror that they're experiencing or sort of watching it's more so just really bleak but you know they're, they're, they go about it completely differently the rat scene is pretty terrifying because they do some really interesting shots of really showing the rats. I don't know what they did. If they maybe gave, I know it's pretty common to test rats by giving them like cocaine and things like that. And you have to wonder like what the hell were they injected with to make them freak out the way that they are actually freaking out in these shots. And like, I legitimately worried for John Hurt that if something went wrong, that those rats really would have eaten his face <laughs> because there was no protections there. That was just a cage with some rats about to go and yeah. chew his face off. Yeah. Uh, but it was really terrifying. Uh, and so I thought that was pretty interesting, the way that they, they really capitalized on that. Because for the most part of the movie up to then, there's no real scariness. But that that is definitely scary mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and very unsettling. But I think it was a really interesting, you know, I said it was a metaphor that they're turning on each other, but it's also a metaphor that they, uh, that Winston was betraying Big Brother, that yeah. uh, he had to be ratted out uh, in order to be fixed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I find it interesting that Winston hates rats, but Big Brother loves rats because they use people as rats. That's true, rat yeah. Out. Yeah. Because then, you know, going back to what we were talking about earlier, using. Uh, the inner party members using the shopkeeper, things like that. Mm-hmm. Definitely finding the rats. Um, this one is a bit of a, you know, more of an esoteric point. But the, while the book was written mostly to be a sort of a critique on fascism, there is definitely lots of critiques of communism as well. Because, you know, at the time they were dealing with Stalin Russia and stuff like that. So it's sort of showing the flaws in communist style politics. The big thing in this world is getting rations. You get rations for razor blades, for gin, for chocolate. Um, and that's something that was, was very popular in, in communist countries because the idea of everyone is equal. So 
you get one loaf of bread, you get one loaf of bread, not one person gets two loaves of bread. Mm. Um, but much like actual communism, we sort of see how the flaws of the people ruling the system will abuse this. So we get this idea of Julia. Um, we learn more in the second film, not in the first film, but we learn in the second film that she's um, quite promiscuous, that her idea of escapism is being able to have sex with who she wants, not being forced to be paired up with someone and things like that. Uh, and it's obvious that she had had relationships with inner party members and on one of her dates with Winston, she brings real coffee, real sugar, and that was something that excited Winston because he'd never had that before. That was really interesting. They kind of are showing the flaws in the communist-style politics where you can claim that there's rations for everyone, but in reality, yeah. it's not quite that way. Yeah, definitely. The inner party always has the upper hand at finding these things. I think one of the other things that really stood out was uh, wine. Uh, they talk mm. about it more in the second film, but it's definitely present in the first film when they go and visit O'Brien O'Connor. Um gives Winston Julian in the first film a glass of wine to celebrate the fact that they're all in this together, they're all traitors together sort of thing. Um, and they point out more so in the second film that wine doesn't usually make it to the outer party very much and Winston, when he's given a glass, he chugs it back because he thinks of it like gin, which he normally drinks. Um, but, you know, we see that O'Connor, O'Brien, I hate confusing now, O'Brien is sipping it a second glass he yeah. takes a small sip that's all yeah. he touches he doesn't, he doesn't <laughs> chug it back he's well aware of how to drink wine <laughs> yeah um so that's that's kind of a, an interesting sort of take on the, the idea of you know equality for everyone in a country where you don't really have anything going for you i think the uh, the last thing is sort of julia's own personal protest it's when she's on the stage she drinks coffee um, she also has a dress that she puts on surprise wearing basically coveralls. Yeah. Um, more so in the second one, they were just wearing coveralls in the first one. They're just wearing, you know, very Uniform, utilitarian yeah. uniforms. Winston has a suit jacket, jacket, but sport a jacket, jacket, sport jacket yeah. of the blandest variety. Mm-hmm. I can't even remember and exactly. And a t-shirt. Yeah. I can't remember exactly what the women. It was kind of similar. If more feminine. Like, 40s kind of skirt and blazer with a belt. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, but yeah, she she gets this dress. She puts it on, and I think it's more evident in the first movie because it definitely looks like the ideal of what like you imagine the the perfect 50s housewife to wear. You know, the sort of leave it yeah. to Beaver uniform yeah. that uh, June Cleaver wears. You know, a very nice gingham dress or whatever yeah. it was. Cinched at the waist, yeah, like puffing out, <laughs> yeah, uh, and, and that's sort of interesting because in the idea of communism, the biggest enemy for that was capitalism, and so you really have this idea of American versus Russian sort of ideals of what the quote unquote American housewife looks like versus what the average communist working party member looks like, comrade looks like because they do call each other comrades. Um, I think. It plays out a little bit better in the second film. She has a very frumpy dress that does not fit her properly, yeah. and it just kind of like goes over her and 
clearly is like maybe two sizes too big, which seems a lot more realistic. It's not a tailored dress for her. Yeah. It's just one that yeah. she found. She found. She got somewhere, right? Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, and when no one has a dress, it obviously will make it'll still make her stand. Yeah. Yeah. I liked that and appreciated that. Yeah. It, it definitely is. And, and she put on some makeup mm-hmm. and like, the makeup Roughly. did not look good on her. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's it's sort of what you imagine when like your four year old gets into yeah, to mommy's makeup yeah. and like puts like two huge red dots on her cheeks yeah. and then smears lipstick all over her lip. I have to say also something that I noticed that I really appreciated about the second one. I mean, there was no nudity in the first one, so it's hard to tell. I mean, after their sex scenes, their supposed sex scenes that are implied in the first one, they're wearing like black turtlenecks, so it's like oh, very sexy. But <laughs> in the second version. There's lots of nudity, and what I really appreciated was that Julia had hairy armpits. Yeah. Because let's face it, when you're getting rationed razor blades, and probably mostly just for the men, you're not shaving your armpits. Yeah. <laughs> yeah you have to wonder if the women are even rationed at all. Yeah. Um, that's definitely not really clear. We, we only really see the idea of, of rationed razor blades in the second one when Winston goes to shave his face and he's got this rusty old blade and then Parsons had asked him if he has any extra rations and stuff like that, which they obviously don't. So razor blades are clearly at a premium mm-hmm. in this world. Uh, but yeah, that, that definitely was something that you saw when she was naked one time. Uh, and I guess sort of one of the last things that I want to talk about is, uh, is the idea of gin being the preferred drink. You know, we're living in... Not we. They are living in this basically a post-apocalyptic world. It looks like the way London looked like when it was being bombed by Germany during World War II. There's ruins everywhere. Uh, A lot of the buildings are rickety at best, uh, (laughs) let alone to say all the ones that are clearly falling apart and not safe for people to live in. Uh, When you have a world like that, clean water is not really accessible you know we can easily look to to places like syria right now and and see what it looks like of people only having three walls for their house they don't have that fourth wall so clearly they're not going to have proper water pipes going in and so instead of drinking water which probably was not healthy at all it was probably infected with things like e coli uh whatever it might have been it was probably not filtered because water filtration plants probably weren't existing they had to drink something and so much like pirates you drink alcohol because that's the safest thing to drink uh alcohol kills any bacteria and germs so they choose to drink gin that is the preferred drink other than wine which is also another thing where it's fermented grapes so you don't have to worry about the water being contaminated uh you have gin um and i also think it's kind of interesting because think if you look at it this idea of using alcohol to sort of control the populace you know a slightly buzzed or 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 drunk citizen is not really ready to think rationally or revolt easily or or things like that because they're drinking gin all the time yeah it keeps their brain a little blurry too right Mm -hmm. you said you're not really ready to think about your next actions you're kind of just either thinking about your next drink or your next pillow <laughs> yeah exactly yeah and you know cigarettes are also rationed and so the idea of both you know cigarettes and drinking alcohol it sort of also will kill your appetite a little bit 
Mm-hmm. A lot of the people are seeing constantly smoking more. So in the first one, the second one it still happens a lot. Um, that's a, an appetite suppressor. So I think that's something that's interesting. In both of them. That's a good way to kind of control the rations. Yeah. We get told of a story. I think it's in the second one. Some of the details blur together a little bit <laughs> because they are, these movies are, are very similar for some parts, but the second one, Winston has job. He's editing old newspapers. So he gets a newspaper where it says chocolate rations are 30 grams a week. But then he has to realize, oh, well, we're actually going only going to be 25. So how do we spin this positively? Instead of losing five grams, we're gaining five grams. So the original headline was chocolate rations, 20 grams. And then later you get Parsons who all excitedly goes, did you hear chocolate rations are going up from 20 to 25 grams? Yeah. Uh, so that's sort of another interesting take on the idea of how things are going around. If you know, you're constantly hungry. Both of these characters, Winston and Julie, are very emaciated. They're very skinny. In the second one, yeah. Yeah, in the second one. We see them quite a few times. Uh, John Hurt's ribs are kind of sticking out. (laughs) Uh, The actress who plays Julia is a very petite woman to begin with. Um, So I think that kind of shows the sort of starvation of these characters. That's something that's not really addressed in the first movie. No, yeah, no. Winston is... uh, or full-figured. Yeah. Stoutly. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> um, although Julia, as you said, with her cinched waist, clearly was also quite a petite woman. Yeah. Well, yeah, in that dress, like, <laughs> I was shocked. I was like, how tiny is she? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so I guess is there anything else that you want to talk about? Maybe some some overarching similarities or differences? Or do you think we covered, covered a lot here? I mean, we covered a lot. I also just... The one of the biggest things of this book and the films is Big Brother always watching you, and I just thought that the second use of Big Brother, the second version's use of Big Brother, was a little bit more threatening. Which I think just the overall the second version was a little bit like I said at the beginning, more realistic, more you know, kind of rang true to what could possibly happen. But you know, on the telescreens and on the posters, it's like an actual human face. It's a picture of this guy giving this really like stern look at you like he's watching you and in the first one it's all posters really Mm -hmm. um of big brother and like this artistic rendering of of a human like almost like uncle sam yeah which you know he's always watching you too if you you see those posters he's kind of scary yeah there there there's probably maybe a a reason behind that design so you know it wasn't and his face wasn't really as um fearful as uh, the second version but he's still they're still present they're both there in each film mm-hmm. i believe i believe the first one the face is modeled after lenin which makes mm-hmm. sense because you know it's sort of we're sort of led to believe that this is a stalin world yeah uh lenin was you know the the antithesis, not necessarily the real antithesis, but what was eventually led to believe was the antithesis of communist Russia. Once again, going that you can kind of go with this revisionist history that both Lenin and Stalin were a part of the Russian uprising, but you know, later on, because their ideals didn't continue meeting, uh, they got rid of Lenin and sort of changed history to make him look like he was the bad guy the whole time. Right. Is sort of a 
a nice trick that I think Orwell probably picked up on living through, you know, World War One, World War Two, seeing how the evolution of these worlds really took place. Yeah. Um, I guess the last thing I really want, you know, maybe finish up uh, at the beginning of this podcast, I talked about maybe some parallels uh, between the book 1984 and what's going on today. Do you, do you kind of feel that this seems like every day it seems like we're living in 1984 where it's like just another thing that George Orwell predicted, you know, 60 years ago. Yeah, it's kind of scary. Actually, I just recently reread Fahrenheit. Uh, 451 and mm-hmm. just like reading it's very similar like dystopian future kind of thing you read these things you're like whoa like someone wrote this and was like fear this mm-hmm. and it's happening in everyday life and you're like okay it's kind of scary like we see it as oh it's just another thing that's happening oh okay we're being like surveillance is everywhere or oh, we don't have any privacy again like we get outraged by it but it's not like what this is really scary. Like, how can this be happening? Whereas when you're reading it in like from when it was originally written or the ideas were first brought out, that would have been a very like terrifying thing to, to even try to imagine. So it just kind of brings you back to what kind of world we're living in now. And these things are happening and we are noticing, and I think it's finally, you know, being realized to its fullest like i don't even know how to describe it this is a very scary world <laughs> yeah 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 it definitely seems like every day you know um and the, they don't really touch on it very much in the, in the first movie the second movie they they talk a lot they use a lot more uh orwell words mm. so things like double plus good and and, and stuff like that where I kind of feel that we're we're definitely living more in that world where there seems to be things, whether it's news or, yeah. or whatever it might be, we kind of are using words that don't necessarily really mean what they mean yeah. to mean something else. It's our newspeak. Yeah, and, and that's exactly what it is. Where um, I think Orwell definitely probably saw that in the propaganda that was going on and sort of hyperinflated it a little bit with such ridiculous words be double plus good or uh ministry of love is actually where they interrogate and torture torture. you (laughs) things like that but like it seems ridiculous to an extent but then like when you when you really start to think about what the meanings of it all is it makes perfect sense of, of why he chose those names for different things you know thought police and thought crimes you know that on the surface kind of sounds like a, a funny idea, but like once you really start thinking about it, you know, uh, the downfall of, of every, you know, terrible regime is the idea of knowledge and power. Yeah. And if so, if you're not thinking the way you should be, whether or not your actions do one thing or the other, it's, it's really your brain. That's the most important part because you can, you can say whatever words you want, but unless you really mean them, it's completely different. And, and so I think that was something that was, that was really prescient about what Orwell was writing about and, and trying to communicate. And I think that as time goes on, it just seems to get true and true. Yeah. Well, that's it. That was uh, this issue of Make Remake. It's always a, a lot of fun game to watch two movies so closely together. 
hopefully we'll we'll keep doing these every once in a while. They're a nice little break up when we don't have uh, other episode ideas. Not necessarily that's lazy, but it's uh, it's a fun thing, a fun little topic to do. Um, so uh, I want to thank you for for being on here again, Stephanie. Yeah, no problem. Uh, and uh, make sure you check out liveandlimbo.com where the show notes will be. And follow me on Twitter at Hey, you can also follow the show at Hunter Zoom Pod. Uh, so thank you so much for listening.